Saints, if you would, open your Bibles to the New Testament epistle of 2 Peter. And as you find yourself there, um, scroll to chapter 3, and then scroll down to verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. And what I want to do is I want to read just the, the three verses to you, 10 through 12. And uh, the message for today, if you are a note-taker, simply call the Day of the Lord. And it's an important concept to understand. It's one of the foundational um, truths that we as Christians um, stand on. Not only his first coming, that God did come to earth, you know, um, that he did, uh, you know, as we're celebrating Christmas, we're, we're so reminded, we're telling people of the coming of Christ. You know, you, you look at the manger scenes and you say, oh, he came, he came, he came, he came as a baby. And, and, and yes, yes, God came as this manifestation in human form, the babe, the son of Mary, Jesus Christ, God Almighty. And as he came, he, he served. And he, he, he did the signs that, that no one else could do. He opened the eyes of the blind and allowed the deaf to hear and the mute and he raised the dead to life. And he did many, many signs and wonders. But while he did that, he preached the good news. He preached the kingdom. As he preached the kingdom of heaven, that, that he said, this is, I want to tell you that there is salvation in my name. This is what he came to do. Yeah, he came as a baby, but when he grew and he was anointed with the Spirit and the Spirit came upon him, he preached repentance. He preached salvation in his name. And then he went to the cross and he died there. He shed his blood for our sins. He went to the tomb and he laid there for three days and three nights. And then he rose again. And then he ascended to heaven. But this is the key. That's not the end. He ascended to heaven, and he's right there now, sitting at the right hand of the, of the throne of God, and he is going to return. Jesus is coming back. And this is foundational. This is where we have to understand. And so he's going to return, and the return of Christ has a name, and it's called the Day of the Lord. You got to understand how powerful of a concept this is. Now, in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, and you, can, you can jot it down. You don't have to turn there. But I do want you to be aware of, of what Amos says because it's so key to every foundational issue that, that God wants us to gravitate to and understand and grow in as Christians. And Amos 3, 7 says, Surely the, the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. God says, I'm not going to do anything unless I'm going to tell you first that it's going to be done. And the coming of Jesus was prophesied. We all know. We, 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 we've been there. We, we, we've seen Isaiah. For unto us a child is born. You know, unto us a king is given. You know, um, and so... Uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You know, he's going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and we know those truths because the prophets have spoken. And God says, I'm not going to do anything. I, I will do nothing unless I already reveal my secrets to my servants, not just to all prophets, but to his servants, the prophets, those who speak forth his word correctly. 
And what Peter does in this epistle, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, he simply says, but the day of the Lord will come. Now, I'm going to pause there, and in my head, I'm just going to put an exclamation point. I love that. The day of the Lord will come. Yeah, he's already come. He's proven it. But as he ascended, he said, I'm going to come back to this very point. When I left on the Mount of Olives, I'm going to come back on the Mount of Olives. I'm going to come back to this point. And I think it's important for us to realize that the day of the Lord will come. Now, the day of the Lord consists of three elements, three things for you note takers. I'll give you the condensed version, then I'll give you the longer version. The, the condensed version is this. The day of the Lord holds, involves three events, three manifestations. One, Jesus is manifested. He comes back. He's going to show you and me and the world who he is. Not that he's that suffering servant, but he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is manifested. The second thing is this, that the cleansing of sin is manifested. That, that when he comes through and he cleanses sin, there's going to be no mistake. Now, in the same way as when the flood came, there was no mistake that God was washing the world. <laughs> Why? The whole world was flooded. There was nothing that wasn't. And so when God does the cleansing, he really does the cleansing. And, and what happens is this, in the same way as that, that manifestation, the world was cleansed through the flood, was manifested in the same way that we're going to see this, is the cleansing of sin is going to be manifested, but not through water this time, through fire. And oh my goodness, is fire a purifier. But understand that, that that is a truth. Jesus is manifested. The cleansing of sin is manifested. But the last truth, why we celebrate Jesus' coming is salvation is manifested. That the salvation that we have trusted and the salvation that we believe in, that salvation is going to be manifested. And this is all part of these three manifestations, these three events, these three things that are all involving this day called the day of the Lord. Now, the broader focus. You have to understand that this first one, that Jesus is manifested, that the prophesied guarantee... And I do mean guarantee. It's been prophesied. It's a guarantee that, that the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it has been declared and redeclared and redeclared and redeclared. And Peter says, I do not cease to remind you, even though you know these things. And I think what a great thing for all of us to constantly be reminded Jesus is coming. Is throughout the scripture, it says he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And I love that. And so we, we have to understand that when he comes through the day of the Lord, there's going to be a manifestation of signs and wonders. There's going to be something unique that happens in the heavens. You know, something like the moon turning to blood, those kind of things. The sky being darkened, things that you don't see every day. And those are the kind of signs that are going to precede the coming of this day of the Lord. So understand, prophesied, guarantee, the manifestation of Jesus, he is coming. The second, 
We see how we've already noted how the cleansing of sin is manifested. That what we're going to see here is there's going to be an unexpected to the world. They're not going to expect it. They're going to think everything happens as it always happens. There's nothing new under the sun. For thousands of years, we've gone on in this way. And for thousands of years, we'll go on on this way. Nothing is going to change. God has simply wound up the clock. He's kind of left the whole thing for those that believe in God. And they say, and everything just goes on the way that it always is. And God, he says, oh, no. There's going to be this event that is going to be unexpected. That you won't recognize it initially that's coming. And it's going to be unexpected, but it's going to be swift. And there's going to be a sudden destruction of sin, unbelievers, and there's going to be a cleansing of sin. Both the, the people that practice sin that is in the world, sin is going to be purged. And then the third thing is the manifestation of salvation. That the deliverance and salvation of those who are his. Now, those who are his, as we see through the scripture, when it talks about the day of the Lord, those who are his are defines are those who are awake and those who are obeying what God has called them to do. And we're going to see that. Are, are you awake? Are you living? Are you manifesting, walking the word of God? Are you walking in his heart? Are you walking in a way that shows that you love him with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength? Are you loving your neighbor? And these are the things that are going to be seen here as, as we, we look to this. The day of the Lord. And as Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come. The very first passage in the scriptures, probably not the earliest, but I do want to just tell you the first passage that is here, is found in the book of Isaiah chapter 2. First, first time the day of the Lord is mentioned in my Bible and in yours. Verses 11 and 12 make this statement, and I want to give you why it's, it's the first. Because in Isaiah chapter 11, or Isaiah chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says basically that the, the Lord alone is going to be exalted, and there's going to be a day of reckoning. Let's, let's, let me read it to you, and, and so that you can just follow along here. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11 the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. You understand how God initially brings up this whole mentioning of this foundational issue of the day of the Lord, the coming of Jesus Christ. I love how verse 11 in Isaiah chapter 2 says, the Lord alone is going to be exalted. <laughs> There's going to be nothing else. And everything haughty in man, everything that, 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 that's proud of man is going to be brought low. When we think, oh, this is great, God said it's not. And I think that's important for us to recognize because there's only one thing that is great and awesome, and that is God. And, and when we look to, well, what have we accomplished? Well, let's see. We sinned. We fell short of the glory of God. 
and the penalty of that sin was death. That's what we accomplished. And the wages of that sin, what we've earned from who we were in that sin nature and what we practiced, death. And then God said, don't worry about that. I will allow the penalty of your sin to be carried out, but not by you, but by my son. So he comes and he takes our sins. He takes it to the cross and he pays them in full. And then he gives us his righteousness. How incredible is that? But this is what we see that, that there's nothing in us, nothing that we've done. And anything that we do now, it's by the grace of God and his spirit guiding us and leading us. This is his hand. This is his heart. And this is the very first mention of the day of the Lord. Now, there's two passages that are quoted probably more than any other in Scripture when dealing with the day of the Lord. Those two passages for you note-takers are actually found in, in Joel chapter 30, or Joel 2 verse 31, and Acts 2 verse 20. Those two passages are, are almost always, always quoted when you have this subject of the day of the Lord. Now, what I want to do is I want to bring in a little bit more context so before we look at that passage in, in Joel 2.31, um, what I want to do is this. I, I want us to, to, to look at what Joel says before the passage is always quoted. Well, why do I want to do that? Well, let's look at some context. I think context is king. Context is important whenever you're looking at a situation because you can read a verse and just read that verse, and then you can just leapfrog in anything you want to say. But when you look at it in its context, it's going to bring a, a character, an unchanging anchor to what the concept that this passage is dealing with. So prior to Joel 2.31, I want to read to you Joel 1.15. It says this, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Now, this is the day of the Lord. He says in Joel 1.15, this day of the Lord, alas for the day. And he says, the day of the Lord is at hand. You know, it's, it's eminent. It's here. It's now. Don't, don't think that, oh, it's going to be sometime down the road. And what, what Joel says, it's now. You need to be recognizing that sin is dealt with now. Salvation is now. The judgment is now. Don't wait down the road. And when you wait down the road, keep in mind that what's going to be happening is you're going to be like, oh, there's more time. There's more time. And I think that is the greatest lie of the enemy. It used to be there's a lot of people say, oh, there is no God. And most of us realize that the very heavens declare the glory of God. And even science, those that went into Darwin and says, oh, it has to, you know, come through the goo to the zoo to you. And eventually through all of this, you know, we are, are, are just evolved. And as they realize now, as they look at this thing called the DNA, it's a code that is written that you cannot have a code change from a monkey to a man. It just can't be. And they're realizing, wow, I guess there is no such thing as evolution. So what we'll do is we'll call it creative design. Now, that's an amazing thing that science actually talks about a creative design. Now, when you ask them, who's the designer? 
Well, that's when they begin to stumble. That's when they begin to stammer. And that's where they begin to try to say, it can't be God. Well, God already said, I am the one. If they have any doubt, just turn to the book of Genesis chapter 1. And we'll see that he makes everything what? After its kind. In other words, DNA sequence, it cannot be changed. Now, you can have fuzzy cats and not fuzzy cats. In fact, I even saw a cat that had no fur. Ugly cat. But you can have different kind of cats, but you can't have a cat and a dog. You can have micro changes within its species, but you can't have macro changes. So when they say, well, what about this turning into this? Yeah, a cat can be fuzzy, a cat cannot be fuzzy, but they're still cats. And I think it's interesting that what begins to happen is you used to have these people that were deniers of God, and now they can no longer deny if they're honest. If they're honest and they look at what sciences understand with, with here, that it has to have a designer. It's too intricate a code for it to happen on its own or by chance. But what we see is this. God says, it's at hand. And what people used to say is there is no God. Now they say, well, God just sort of wind up everything. And he just suddenly lay it, let it go. God isn't in control. God isn't in charge. And what they're saying is God is going to delay. Everything's going to happen the same way it's always happened. There isn't going to be a change. And I love what Joel does because he makes a statement here in the, in the first chapter, verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It is now. It is eminent. Make no mistake about it. And so I love how he begins to really point out this is the day it is at hand. Now, in Joel chapter 2, verse 1, he makes this statement. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Now, not only does Joel say it's at hand, but just in case, like he said, but it isn't today. He said, it may not be today, but God has already purposed it, so it's done, it's signed, it's sealed. And even though he says it's at hand, if it's not happening today, he says in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, for the day of the Lord is coming. Make no mistake about it. And I think you, you have to realize that what Joel is trying to say is it is sure to come. Don't, don't question it. Don't think that it might come or it's pretty sure that it's going to come. Joel says it is going to come, period. God states it. The day of the Lord is coming. Why? For it's, it, is, it is at hand. God has already signed the decree. It's going to be there. It's already a done deal. It's already signed and sealed. And it's in the process right now of manifesting itself where we can be aware of it called the day of the Lord. So I love what Joel begins to do. And then what we see is this. When he says it's sure to come, and I want to just bring you a little bit of context to what he says it's coming and I want to show you in this context from Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. Now he says this in verse 2. A day of darkness and gloominess 
a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them. For even for many successive generations, a fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns and the land is like the Garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness. So he talks about this army coming. He comes into a land that's flourishing. He, they completely wipe it out to nothing. Verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like swift steeds, so they run. With the noise like chariots over mountaintops, they leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours a stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them, verse 6, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. So what he says the day of the Lord is this. The near sense of this prophecy is Babylon's coming. Get ready, they're going to wipe you out. This army, you, there's nothing you can do. And so I find that interesting that Joel talks about a near sense, but he also talks about this, this other army that you can see is going to be a future sense, and we'll look at that a little later on. But I want you to see the context that is there as he says, this day of the Lord initially is this army that's coming. It is going to be what? A manifestation of God? He's going to show his power. He's going to deal with sin. He's going to reveal his salvation. Those are the context that's going to be here. So near sense, Babylon, of course, but we're going to see it continues further on. And now in chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? So when God comes and manifests judgment upon sin, he makes a statement here in Joel that there's no one that can endure this discipline. In other words, when God disciplines, it's going to be corrective and there is no mercy there is no grace. It's just a manifestation of the judgment of sin. Why is that important for us to gravitate to? What do you do for unbelievers? See, eventually when it comes to the day of the Lord, and we're going to see you in Peter in just a little bit, but I want to give you this heads up that he talks about this day of the Lord is going to be what? Fire consuming. Everything is just going to be consumed in the blaze. It's just this fire is going to consume everything. Now, if fire consumes everything... What do you do if you know a building is on fire? Are you going to say, walk out like, oh, wow, too bad for the people on the inside? Are you going to say, no, wait, the building's on fire? I'm going to try to get as many people to realize destruction, death, devastation is here, eminent. Get out, move, change your lifestyle. And we see here that this is what, when, when the fire comes, when God judgment comes, Everyone who's in that building perishes. Everyone. So what do we do? Get the people out of the burning building. Tell them that there's fire coming. Tell them there's devastation coming. Tell them that sin will be judged. I mean, tell them in love, but tell them. And I think it's important that what he says here 
in, in, in Joel 2.11, and this is, this is where it's key, and I want to read now from 11 down to verse 16, but he says this, the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible who can endure it. Verse 12, now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and he's merciful. He's slow to anger and great in kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Understand what God says? It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. He says what? So get out of the building and come to my arms. Get out of the building and come to my love. He says in verse 14, for who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Gather the people before the Lord. And what I love is it's, it's everybody, not just the leadership, not just those in Calvary Chapel, but, but everyone, gather the old and the young, male and female children. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them that he's coming again. Tell them of his love. Tell them of his, of his, of his gracious and merciful heart. Tell them that he is slow to anger and he's great in kindness. Tell them that he relents from doing harm. Tell them that he sent Jesus Christ as a babe to grow to a man to die for our sins. And if we put our faith in him, that we experience the fullness of God's salvation. Tell them. That's why he says in verse 50, blow the trumpet, make a noise, let people know. How incredible is that, that God wants us to be excited to tell people, not that the building's on fire, but that salvation is there. In other words, is this, the building is on fire, but don't worry, God has what? He's made another mansion for you. He's got another place all set. Just don't worry about it. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. He he's, says, yeah, this one's burning down, but it, it's rat infested. It's roach infested. It's nasty. And I've got a mansion that is pure and perfect for you. Not just a one room little, little shack. I've got a place. And I love the heart. I love what God does as he begins to open up this passage here in Joel. And after he makes that declaration, after he goes and he manifests that thing, then he finally comes to one of the most quoted passages that deals with the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. And let me simply read that to you. Joel 2, verse 30, And I will show wonders in heaven and in earth, blood and fire and pillars and smoke, then he says this, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
So this is that quote. It's the day of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord. Look at the sign. The, the, the moon is going to be blood. The, 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 the sun is going to turn to darkness. But then, and people always forget this. They, they say there's going to be signs and wonders. They say what the signs and wonders are. But in verse 32, directly following here, the day of the Lord, it says this. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you understand how these three things are distinct and in its place, but you can't have one without the other? So the day of the Lord is not just destruction. The day of the Lord is the manifestation of Christ, the manifestation of this cleansing of sin, the manifestation of salvation. All three things are there, and you can't have one without the other. Jesus is coming to deal with sin and to bring those who are his. This is the day of the Lord. And as we look to this, and I love the heart of what God does, he makes this statement, and is so key here, that there in verse 32, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So he tells the nation of Judah, Israel, that is there in Jerusalem and Judah. He tells them, Babylon's coming. They're going to wipe you out. There's going to be nothing left. But don't worry. There's going to be deliverance in Jerusalem. And I am that deliverance. And what is that deliverance? Well, he says, it shall come to pass that whoever, not, not, not just the elect, but whoever, because if you call on the name of the Lord, guess what? You are the elect. Now, you may not want to believe it, but it is. It's this truth of God that we don't fully understand, but we have to understand that he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, and so it isn't just, you know, no matter where you think, well, I can't because I've done this. If you call the name of the Lord, this is his, his grace because, because his grace trumps and, and overpasses sin. And that's what grace is. No matter where you are in sin, the grace is you can turn and begin to follow him. This is the heart. The other one that is actually a quote from here in Joel that is the other most quoted passage dealing with this whole area of um, the, the, the sin of, of man is found in the book of Acts chapter 2. And what he does is he quotes from Joel, but the, the biggest quote that we actually see from the day of the Lord is actually found in Acts 2 verse 20, which says, and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. He talks about the sign. But what they miss is this, that in, in verse 19, in verse 21 of Acts 2, he says, verse 19, I will show wonders in heavens above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, devastation. The sun shall be turned into darkness. The moon shall into blood the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Then verse 21, Peter declares, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
This is the key to the day of the Lord. Not just the devastation. Jesus is coming. He's going to be manifested. The dealing of sin is going to be manifested. The salvation that he offers is going to be manifested. All three are key. All three are context. But what Peter begins to do in his epistle there in chapter 3, verse 10, is he makes a statement, but the day of the Lord will come. And then he says this, but as a thief in the night. Now, now, why does he make that statement? The day of the Lord is going to come. But he says, as a thief in the night. Where does Peter get this idea? Where in the world does Peter get this idea that the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night? Does he get it from Paul? Did he read like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? Is that where Peter gets it from? I don't think so. There's a passage that Peter actually listened to the declaration of the Lord, found in Matthew chapter 24. Now, what Jesus does is he begins to give a foundational message of the day of the Lord without simply calling it the day of the Lord. And I want to read it to you, Matthew chapter 24. I want to start reading in verse 33 to give it context. I'll read all the way down to verse 44. Just so you know, I'm not trying to sell you something. I want to give you something, truth, but I don't want to sell you something. So he says in Matthew 24, verse 33, he said, So you also, Jesus speaking, when you see all these things, know that it is near. I think it's important. He says, it is near. It is at the door. What is near? He says this, verse 34, Surely I say to you, this generation will no means pass away till all these things will take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Now he talks about a day and an hour. What day and hour is he talking about? Well, as you see, He's going to reference three things. He's going to reference, one, the manifestation of his coming. He's going to reference, two, the dealing with sin. (laughs) And he's going to deal with, three, the manifestation of salvation. So I wonder what day he's talking about. Just, Just ponder with me, if you will. And so we see here that what Jesus says is this. But of that day and hour, whatever day that might be, I'm going to just guess it's the day of the Lord. You guess whatever else you want. He says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Whoa, he talks about his manifestation. Surprise, surprise. I wonder what day he's referring to. And he talks about the days of Noah, the judgment that comes. And then he says this, verse 20, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known the hour the thief would come, I wonder where Peter got that idea. The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Could it be that Jesus was talking about this amazing day when he would come and that that sin would be dealt with, that he would come and then he would say this in verse 43, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour where you do not expect. I love the heart of what the Lord does. Now, keep in mind, as he points out of the days of Noah, 
And, and he says, they were eating and drinking. Everything is fine. What? All things continue like they've always been. Until what? Until judgment of sin came. And then there was nothing they could do. It was eminent. And it was, as we begin to see, it was going to take out the entire world. And that's what we've already learned. That God judged the entire world with the exception of the eight that he put into the ark. And as we see this, I, I just find it amazing that Jesus is the first one that mentions this day in the New Testament. He's the first one that mentions as a thief in the night. So Peter kind of just picks that right on up. But he calls the day, very specifically, the same thing that, that Joel had done. He'd already quoted from Joel before in his very first message. So I can understand why it's in his head, because the first message you ever give is still in your head. And matter of fact, the first message that I ever gave there at Calvary Chapel Vista on a, on a Sunday night, still in my head. <laughs> That's amazing. It hasn't gone. And what we see is this. Peter picks it up. And Peter makes a declaration. Now, Paul will also do the same thing. He'll make mention of this thief in the night. And that's found in, in, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. And, and I want to read to you just those two verses that are there, but then I want to back it up and give you more context. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 2 and 3, and then I'm going to back up all the way to chapter 4, verse 13, and read into verse 11 of chapter 5. But chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, unexpectedly. Boom, it's just here. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. You understand, he says, it's coming. It is going to happen. He's going to be manifested when he comes. Sin will be dealt with. And then in verse 4, he says, but you, brother, are not in darkness. They should overtake you. Salvation. Amazing how those three characteristics are there. Now, let's back up to where he really shows the coming of the Lord back here in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says to this church of Thessalonica, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Salvation. For we say... To you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. He's coming back. And it says he's going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are re alive and remain shall be caught up. The word in the Greek, harpazo, the word translated in the Latin called raptus. We call it rapture. We shall be caught up. So when someone says there's no term rapture in the Bible, and you would say, no, there's not. But there is a term in the Greek called harpazo, which means to be caught up or snatched violently by force. We shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Understand that he is coming. Oh, he is coming. But realize this, and this is where some people kind of get tripped up. 
that in the Old Testament, when they said, God is going to come, what was happening is this. They were scratching their yarmulkes because they couldn't reconcile how he was going to come. Because there were some passages that said that here he was going to come as the suffering servant. He was going to come and he was going to die. And they're like, okay, I, I, I don't fully understand that. But if God is going to come and die, if he comes like a lamb led to his slaughter, that opens not his mouth, and he's going to you know, literally be put to death for the transgressions of man, that he's going to literally spread his arms wide and they pierce his hands and his feet. And we realize as Scripture declares that he is going to come, but he is going to die. And then they said, but here it also says that he's going to come and he's going to rule and reign. Which one is it? What they didn't realize is, and they couldn't see it, is there were going to be two comings. There was going to be the coming as a suffering servant. There was going to be coming as a conquering king. And they couldn't reconcile. Well, here's the problem in the New Testament. We see that Jesus is coming. And we understand the day of the Lord is what? Well, the day of the Lord is a context, not just one date. Now, there's many dates that can be determined as the day of the Lord, but each one of those things, because remember now, we were already there in Joel, right? And Joel was talking about the day of the Lord is what? Babylon coming in his army. That was the day of the Lord. Why was it the day of the Lord? God was going to be manifested. The judgment of sin was going to be manifested. The um, salvation was going to be manifested. Humble yourself. Cry out to God. Those things, when those three things happen, God says, this is my day. This is my day. And so keep in mind, do you ever heard the statement back in the day? Now, the older you get, the more frequently it's used. Well, back in the day. Now, you're not referring to only one day. You're referring to what? A season, an event, a situation, a theme, if you will. And this is what the day of the Lord is. It's more as, as a theme that holds these three key contexts. The Lord is manifested, judgment of sin is manifested, and of course, salvation is manifested. And what we see here, what Paul does is he says, there's two comings of the Lord, one in the air and one to the ground. And there's some people who can't wrap their heads around it. Well, neither could the people of the Old Testament. They had to believe it what? God just said it. I'm going to believe it even though I can't fully understand it. And here what Paul says is Jesus is going to come back and he's going to call it the day of the Lord. Now you have to understand that there are some people, this is where the argument comes in. Some people say the day of the Lord can only be when he comes at at Revelation. We'll look at that in a moment. And others say, no, the day of the Lord is here at the rapture. And what I'm trying to tell you is it's both. And so all the people that are arguing, what happens is they forget to read Joel chapter 2, where he says the day of the Lord is the destruction of the Babylonian army. Which one is it? Yes. (laughs) The answer is yes. That is the answer. And, and if you open it up to a concept versus dogmatically saying it's only this. Now, now, is the day of the Lord where Babylon came? Yes, it absolutely is. Is the day of the Lord the rapture? Absolutely is. Is the day of the Lord when he comes at the end of Revelation? Absolutely it is. See, I don't, I don't, have, a, I don't have a problem with, with my brother. It's here. <laughs> you better believe it's here. Yes, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But understand, context 
is king, and it tells us everything as far as the concept of what the Lord is trying to teach us. And so Paul here makes this statement, once again in verse 16 of chapter 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first. But we, verse 17, who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, verse 5, continuing, now, now chapter 5, verse 1, keep in mind that he doesn't say, oh, let's stop the thought, let's make a new chapter, make a new verse. He doesn't do that. He continues on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verse 18 and chapter 5, verse 1 as there's no break, so you can follow along. He says in verse 18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. In other words, the words were to be caught up. But concerning the times and the seasons, brother, we have no need that we should write to you. For you yourselves perfectly know that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. It's going to come unexpectedly. Do you understand how he's talking about the rapture? We being snatched up to God is part of this day of the Lord. And, and so he makes this statement, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, verse 3. And when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Labor pains as a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. For you are sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Let us watch and be sober. Do you understand? He's saying he's going to come. Now, we understand he's going to come at the end of the great tribulation. He is going to come. He's going to right all things. But here's the problem. He's going to come before that as well. So what do we need to do? Be awake, be alert, and be sober. And I think it's important where he says in verse 6 of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch, be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath. Do you understand what that means? Remember in Revelation chapter 6 where all the kings and the mighty men are hiding themselves in the cleft of the rock and they say, hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the, same word here, wrath of the Lamb. And I love what Paul says. He says, God has not appointed us to wrath. It's the kings of the world who are all hiding in the caves. It's not us. We're, we're, we're kind of watching the whole thing from a balcony seat. saying, Whoa, this is amazing, Lord, what you're doing. And I love it how he says, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we shall be together with him. Therefore, comfort one another and edify one another, just as you also are doing. You understand how key this is as far as the quickness. He said, it's just going to come. It's going to be gone. And when Jesus comes, understand that, that when the judgment came upon the world at the time of Noah. First raindrop fell. No more chance of repentance. No more chance of, oh, we get to be in the ark. It's not going to happen. The ark is closed. Come into the ark. God closes the door. And then, do you understand? Once it's sealed, it's secured, then judgment comes and salvation is evident. Now, when we look at what Peter begins to do, he makes this statement, and once again, we're going to be looking at how he does this. He starts off, verse 10, but the day of the Lord, 
And I think it's important to realize this is so important. The day of the Lord will come, but it's going to come as a thief in the night. It's going to come quickly. It's going to come unexpectedly. And then it says this, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. There is going to be this purging. There is going to be a cleansing that God does upon the world. Everything. And this is why it's so important where he says, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. What God is trying to say is there's going to be this massive, massive purging, this massive cleansing of sin in the same way as once God flooded the world with water, there was no more sin. There was, you know, Noah, his kids, and, and we see that, that there when they came, the world was washed. The world was cleansed. The problem was, was what? <laughs> Noah still had a sin nature. So did his sons. Those things would be manifest, and it wasn't long that Noah what? Well, he had a vineyard, drank wine, got drunk. Sin was manifested. But I think it's important for us to see that there is going to be a cleansing of sin. Now, this Wednesday, I'm going to jump back to the Old Testament in our teaching. I'm going to go through the book of Zephaniah. So on Sunday, I'll be taking a portion of Zephaniah and reading it. But I want to actually take you to a point of Zephaniah here this morning as we look at simply the day of the Lord. And what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to start here in Zephaniah chapter 1. And I want to read to you verses 12 through 18. I'm going to jump to chapter 2, read the first three verses. And I'm going to jump to chapter 3 and read verse 14 and 15. I'll, re, I'll re, you know, iterate the, the verses. So don't worry about you note takers. I didn't get the first one. First one, Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And Zephaniah, he makes this statement, it shall come to pass at that time, Zephaniah 1.12, that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. They're simply complacent, saying, God isn't in control. He's not doing anything. He wound us up. He left us alone. Therefore, verse 13, their goods shall become booty. Their house is a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. Now, notice what he's saying, the quickness of it. God is coming. He's coming fast. It's going to happen. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter where the mighty men shall cry out. Now, I want you to see this purging that happens in verses 15 through 18. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against fortified cities and against the high towers. Does that sound like a good day? I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. Wrath, trouble, distress, devastation, desolation, darkness, gloominess, clouds, thick darkness, alarm. Bad day. 
It's kind of like a Monday, you know, it's just not a good day. And, and it will, verse 17, bring distress upon men. That makes perfect sense. You have a day like verse 15, distress is bound to happen. And he says, it will bring distress upon men and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust. So understand verse 14, the great day of the Lord, this day of the Lord is near. Verse, at the end of verse 17, he says, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuge. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. Deal with sin. He will make a speedy riddance of all those who dwelt in the land. So you understand the devastation that comes. He is going to come. <clears throat> he is going to manifest the dealing with sin. But then chapter 2 comes and of course, there's no break. It's not like Zephaniah says, oh, let's pause and make another chapter here. He's just writing one letter. So when it says at the end of verse 18, he will make a speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land, then he says, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued. He says, before this day happens, get your mind in gear, get out of the building. Or the day passes like chaff. In other words, it's too late. You're already burned up. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger. So he says, it's coming. It's at hand. It's imminent. But before it comes, notice what it says in verse 3 of Zephaniah 2. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility that it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Do you understand how salvation is always constantly knit to judgment when it comes to the day of the Lord? God is going to be seen. He's going to manifest the dealing with sin, but he's going to manifest salvation to all. And I love how here Zephaniah says, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, devastation. Verse 15 is here. I mean, when you talk to your friends who aren't saved and just say, hey, listen, there's going to be a day of wrath, trouble, distress, devastation, desolation, darkness, gloominess, clouds and darkness, sound and alarm. Do you want to be in that day? No, I don't. Okay, then before that day, this is what you do. Before that day. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Don't be haughty. Don't be like, oh, Lord, it's a good thing you got me. It's like, oh, no. God, it's by your grace, only by your grace that you would call me. There's nothing to deserve it, nothing to earn it. And I'm going to seek the Lord, all the meek of the earth. That I can be hidden, avoid the wrath, when judgment comes upon sin. Isn't that amazing that we as Christians, we will not be at the great white throne judgment. We'll be at what? We'll be at the Bema seat where he says, ah, you get the, the, the red ribbon, you get the blue ribbon, you get the best of class, you get the participant ribbon. I mean, it's going to be one or the other. All your works are going to be tested by fire. Some will be purified. Some will be burned up. Wood, hay, and stubble, some gold, silver, precious stones. There's a purification of oh, fire of all things. Go figure. And I love how what God does here in Zephaniah. And then he says this. 
In chapter 2, wait, back that up. Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He, he makes this statement. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. <laughs> Salvation is so evident. Just the rejoicing of the Lord of what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. One other passage I want you to be aware of, and this is kind of key, found in the book of Zechariah. I know we got a lot of Z's this morning, Zephaniah, Zechariah, but just turn over a couple and you'll find yourself in Zechariah. We'll get there in a couple of weeks, maybe longer, probably longer, definitely longer. But we'll eventually get to Zechariah chapter 14. I want to read to you the first nine verses. It begins in Zechariah 14 verse 1. Out of all things, he would write, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Now, that's something that we're very aware of. If we haven't been, we are very aware of it today. It is coming. It is at hand. It is eminent. The day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. Everything that you have tried to save up and say, oh, I want this, I want this, I want it. He says, it's gone. It's going to be divided. Now, now we know what? Well, Jesus taught us that all of the works... All the works. There's only one thing that is going to go ahead. Because everything here of the earth, all of its works, all of its thing is going to be what? Burned up. If you're like, oh, I want to make a monument for myself. Go ahead and make a monument. I mean, put your face up on Mount Rushmore. Who cares? Because eventually what? It's going to melt with the fervent heat. No faces on Mount Rushmore. There's going to be no monuments to men. There's going to be no monuments to men's greatness. There's only going to be one thing. Glory to God. Just and only glory to God. And this is his heart, and this is his mind, but he says, the day of the Lord is coming. You're spoiled. Everything that you try to get in the world is going to be gone. All of the treasures that you lay up for here on earth will be consumed. Therefore, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, because where your treasure, there your heart will be also. Put your treasures in heaven. Let your heart go to heaven. Don't, don't try to do anything here on the earth because anything you do is going to be burned up earthwise. But he says, your, your spoil will be divided in your midst. Verse 2, he says, I'm going to gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The houses rifled. The women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So there's going to be destruction to a portion, salvation to another portion. Verse 3 of Zechariah 14. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. What do we see? The manifestation of the Lord. He's going to deal with the nations. He's going to fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Verse 4. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, this is unique. He's initially talking about Babylon coming, and now he's saying... He's going to come back. He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. No, no, no. What? How? I don't get this. Well, understand that when Jesus ascended, he was there on the Mount of Olives, right? And now he says he's going to come back to the Mount of Olives. He said, in the same way that I've left, I'm going to come back, he says in Acts. But I want you to understand what he says here in Zechariah 14, verse 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. 
and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved towards the north and half of it towards the south. And then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee. And you, as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Now, this is amazing. He says, God's going to come and so are the saints. Isn't it amazing that I actually believe that we are the context at the end of verse 5. He's going to come and we're coming with him. I love what Revelation talks about us coming on white horses, <coughs> clothed in white, and all we do is we just ride along for the fun of it because he just comes, he takes a sword, he devours them all, and, and it's done. But verse 6, and it shall come to pass in the day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. Now we understand. No one knows except the Father. So we understand as he talks about, you know, verse 14, one, the day of the Lord is coming. We're still in that context. But he makes the statement in verse 6, it shall come to pass in one day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. God's going to say, I'm going to shine my work to everyone. And in that day, verse 8, it shall be that the living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And then in verse 9 it says this, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. At this point we say, amen. And that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. He's going to come and he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. And as Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives, he creates an earthquake and it literally splits north to south. And so there comes a valley that those people who are invading Jerusalem as the Antichrist, the, the, the Jews are able to flee Jerusalem and then do what? Go into the wilderness. But they're able not to have to climb the, the Mount of Olives. Just... just God has a way of dividing things. Dividing the Red Sea, nothing. Dividing the Mount of Olives, nothing. When God wants to make something asunder, he just does it. And he makes a valley. He, so you're not having to go up and down. You just walk straight. <laughs> and you make your way out to the wilderness. This is what God is going to do. And we see that that all takes place, what? In the mid part of Revelation. Where, where the, the Antichrist comes and, and he... He has this issue with the, the nation of Israel, and, and he pursues the woman, but the woman flees into the wilderness, and then as the army goes after them, what? The earth opens up and swallows them, kind of like the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army. Just open, glump, we're done, let's just move on. My people go, the enemy dies. But I think it's important to realize here what Zechariah begins to say that there is going to be this cleansing that goes on. Zephaniah declares it. Zechariah declares it. And just in case you're wondering, yes, John the Apostle declares it. He declares it there in Revelation 19. And I just want to kind of show you that the passage, you know it well. We've, we've 
referenced it multiple times, studied it multiple times, but in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Does it sound anything like maybe the day of the Lord? <laughs> now, we know the day of the Lord was what? The day of the Lord was there in the, where the Babylonian army came. The day of the Lord is there with the rapture. The day of the Lord is also at the beginning of the tribulational period where the enemy comes after Jerusalem and then they leave. This is prior to this point. And then Jesus comes back again. And understand what begins to happen is it says this. He judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, verse 12. On his head were many crowds, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, follow him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword with which he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of his wrath and of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, manifestation of the Lord, manifestation of the judgment of sin, and then, of course, the manifestation of what? Salvation, coming as the Lord's army. And I think it's important that what we recognize here is when it comes to this point that here as he comes, it makes a statement in verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice saying, let all the birds fly in the midst of heaven come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all the people free and slave, both small and great. And I saw a beast, the beast, the king of the earth. And their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now, bad idea. Just let me tell you. That, that's my commentary. Verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who works signs in his presence by which he descended. Or by which he deceived those who received the mark and the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. So you see what the army does? The army's just support. Go, Jesus. That's all we do. Do your thing. And the birds were filled with their flesh. And I think it's important to realize that there is going to be a cleansing. And when Jesus comes, keep in mind that when this day of the Lord comes, sin is dealt with, sin is purged. In the same way as he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to make war with everything that is in opposition to me. And that's important because what we saw was this. Remember in verse 18, the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. It's not just, just the leaders it's everyone. He makes war with everyone. And this is why I think it's so important that Peter comes and he tells us about this day of the Lord. And when, when he says it's the day of the Lord, 
And let me start out by reading 2 Peter 3.10. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as the thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, verse 11, since all these things will be dissolved, since it will be consumed, he asks this question, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Knowing this is true, what should we do? And I think this is a great question because we, we, we looked first at, you know, the, 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 the actual day itself, the coming of the Lord. And then we saw the quickness, how it's going to come like a thief in the night. And then we saw the cleansing as Zephaniah and Zechariah and Revelation points out he's just going to cleanse and cleanse and cleanse. And now we see the calling. What kind of person ought you be? Knowing it's going to come, knowing the devastation is going to come, knowing that Jesus will be manifested, judgment of sin will be manifested, and salvation will be manifested. What should you and I be? And, and, and I love the, the thing. He basically points out three things. We should be a waiting people. We should be a working people. And I think we should be a warning people. Kind of basic. And I know you're saying, yeah, now you give three points. But, but it, it's true. We're, we're at this point where in the calling, there's a waiting, the work, and the warning. And this is, this is where I think it's so important. Because what we need to do is this. He says in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, that translation in the New King James is a little awkward. I love how the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible defines it. And, and I think it's a better translation. He says, wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God. That's the better translation. What kind of people should you be? Oh, we should be those who are waiting for and desiring his coming. In other words, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what we should be doing. This is the heart of what we, what we have. And I think as we, we look to this, it's just a, a beautiful thing of looking to, Lord, this is your heart. This is what you're going to do. And so as we, we see here, I think... The waiting, we should be waiting for and earnestly desiring his coming. The other is this, working diligently um, until the day of the Lord. He, he makes a statement at the end of verse 11. He says, what kind of persons ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? And so he says, looking forward, waiting for and earnestly desiring the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. And so I think it's important that, that we're, we're working diligently. Remember where Joel says, you need to be awake. You need to be moving. You need to be anticipating. And Jesus, open your eyes. Get it right. I'm coming. Don't wait until after the day. The day is coming. So before it comes... I think it's so important. Wake up, open your eyes. And that, that's what you know, Paul was saying in Thessalonians. He says, don't, don't be asleep. Don't be in the night. Be awake. Be alert. Be sober. Be diligent, diligent. Be moving forward to the things of God. Wait. Oh, wait for an earnest desire his coming. But while you're waiting, open your eyes. Serve him. Work. Let your life say, I'm waiting for you. Come at any moment. Don't, don't have your life be like, he's kind of like, oh, man, I wish you would have came the day before. You would have waited. And your life should always be, come now. 
You shouldn't have any, any desire to say, I, I don't want you opening your eyes and, and, and seeing everything that I'm doing, everything in my heart. I'm just going to always try to live a life that, that it's, it's open to you, Lord. I know it is open, but I want to be reminded that it's open to you. I don't want to do anything that would hinder your joy in what you're doing for me. I want to honor you with it. And, and, and the last... The waiting, the working, and the warning is this. He says, at the end of verse 12, he makes a statement. He says, understand, because which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with the fervent heat. I think it's important that there's an urgency that we warn those who are continuing in sin. We warn those who are not looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And I think it's an, one of those things where we have right now this beautiful season, and it's amazing that God would put us into this passage at the very beginning of the Advent as we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, that when we look at the little babies, I love the manger, I love the baby, I love all this, and say, yeah, do you know the baby's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords? And that day, in case you'd never read your Bible, was called the Day of the Lord, let me tell you about the day of the Lord. <laughs> Let me tell you what it involves. It involves him coming. It involves him dealing with sin, but it involves him offering salvation. And when he deals with sin, it's devastating. It's devastating. Sin is death. And he's going to manifest that death all around. But before death comes, he says what? Choose life that you may live. Let us be those who are looking forward to the day of the Lord in all of its aspects. But let us be those who are, are, are waiting, desiring, but at the same time, I'm working, I'm, I'm serving, I'm, I'm listening to your heart, I'm being led by your spirit, and I'm warning those who do not know. I'm telling them, get right, get right, because the day of the Lord means this, sin is going to be judged. And so often our witnessing, we leave that out. We always talk about Jesus and his love and Jesus and his love, but understand that rejecting his gift is what you will be judged in your sin. Unless you, you say, Jesus, you, you took it and, and <laughs> you had it judged <clears throat> and then you gave me righteousness and I can stand on that. Oh my goodness, saints, I think it's so important for us, so important for us to really focus on and have our minds and our hearts set on this day of the Lord. Amen? Amen? Oh, Father, you are so good. You are so gracious. You are so amazing to deal with these truths in our lives and in this world. And so we bid you, Jesus, Maranatha, come quickly. Deal with what you have to deal with. We know that you have been long-suffering, and so thank you, thank you, thank you, because in your waiting, you allowed us to be made right. And you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, so do, do the work you need to do. But Father, help us be those who are not of the night, but we're working as those who are of the day. Help us to be those who are, are looking at people who are in the burning building that will perish in their sins and the devastation that we see here is manifested in your judgment of sin, that we have a heart for them, 
and that we too are desiring that none should perish and that we should warn them, Lord, of this impending doom, the destruction of, of, of them and their sin and their place. But salvation is offered. Receive it before it's too late. Help us proclaim these truths, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, amen. amen.